Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I'm the tech editor of Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is a new edition of the Critics' Roundtable, which gives RA's editorial staff a chance to go in-depth on the year in electronic music thus far. For the first time, RA's North American contributors take the reins, with Andrew Rice joining Max Pell and Michelle Luke. The conversation covers their favourite new releases, DJ sets and emerging sonic trends, ranging from Canadian Ilbian to jazz fusion vaporwave and the changing face of New York's club landscape. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The Critics' Roundtable is up next. Welcome to the Resident Advisor Exchange Critics Roundtable. It's a chance for us and our writers to talk about what we like, what inspires us, what we think about the scene, the landscape of electronic music. Uh, my name is Andrew Rice. I am the North American editor of Resident Advisor, uh, and I'm here in New York with... Hi, my name is Max Pearl. Um, I'm a staff writer uh, based in the New York office. I cover the New York scene as well as the East Coast. Uh, and this is my first ever Critics Roundtable because usually we do them in Europe, and this is an exciting opportunity because finally we get the American perspective on electronic music. So, shouts to America. Hi, I'm Michelle. I am a music and cannabis journalist, um, and I throw a party called Weed Rave. Um, so thank you guys for joining me today. Uh, the first thing I wanted to talk about was our favorite records of the year so far. Uh, so uh, Michelle, you picked uh, the Musai Lama record on Helsing Unveil. So uh, why don't we listen to a track from that for a bit and then we'll talk about it. Yeah, so Musalama is based in 
Mecca, Saudi Arabia, um, I came across their music because Rabbit, who runs the imprint Halcyon Vale, sent me this Dropbox of the album. And I was immediately super blown away because it just sounded like nothing I've ever heard before. You know, um, I've always really loved how Arabic sounds. Like growing up in Singapore, I would hear you know, like calls to prayer for the mosque all the time. And until recently, I feel like the extent that most Western music fans have heard Arabic in music and electronic music has come from like weird news stories of like DJs playing, you know, like the call to prayer in a club. Like you guys remember in 2017, there was this like controversy that a Tunisian club hosted a a Western DJ who played a call to prayer and it got the club shut down. So what I'm trying to say is that usually I think up until this point, it's been very much filtered through a Western perspective. And I think this record was a really cool hybrid of, you know, the beats kind of sound kind of like burial-ish to me and 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 very much in line with like the rest of the club music that we will be hearing like out in a club, but then with these like really poetic phrases that apparently come from like the Quran and it has, it has this whole narrative that unfortunately I can't understand. But yeah, I don't know. I just love the sort of hybridity that's happening there. Yeah, uh, when I listened to it, it really uh, blew me away. Also, like it, it feels natural, but something about it feels very unusual for our world. Like you said, especially um, the vocals. It's from what I understand, it's, in, it's in, a lot of it is in classical Arabic. It is from a lot of it is from the Quran or from like ancient translations of the Quran. And I, I read that or I heard that he had to leave Mecca because it would be like too controversial. And now he's based in Egypt, um, and like. Egyptians like Zuli produced the, the beats on the album. Right. So it's like a very collaborative project. But a lot of it is pretty mysterious and I had to piece together a lot of little bits of info. But yeah, it really stuck with me too. And I also think it's cool that it's being released on Halcyon Vale, which is based in Texas, which is not at all like, you know, the place that you would associate but like totally makes sense at the same time you know I have this theory that cities outside of like the typical urban metropolises of like New York and London so Halcyon Vale is based in Houston and I think that these other cities have a connection through their so-called otherness I guess you know what I mean and like I think that thanks to the internet there's this new sort of like digital global club community that transcends geographical boundaries while still being hyper-localized, but there's a sort of interconnectivity happening between all these cities. And it makes sense that they're able to like join forces and promote each other and push like really interesting underground club music. Yeah, actually it's um, just piggybacking off of this. I recently, uh, DJ Haram posted something on Twitter the other day that was a link to um, a project called Cairo Concepts, which I guess is an, an Egyptian uh, sort of experimental club project that has a compilation coming out. Um, and their Haram is included on the project. So just that and uh, and hearing the Zuli record and then now hearing about this guy who is based in Egypt now, it gives me a, uh, makes pique my curiosity. You know, it seems like maybe it's... Uh, sort of like shifting into becoming a focal point for really interesting uh, kind of cutting edge electronic music. Uh, Max, what was your selection? 
I picked something called, uh, it's the artist is named URA, and it's an album called Entertainment. It's from a, a label in Montreal called Collect Call. Uh, and I'm thinking of it as like an ilbient revival record. Um, I don't know if that's a term that our audience knows, but why don't we listen to it and then we can talk about it. This is the title track off of the LP, Entertainment. Like I said, um, it sort of reminds me of, um, wasn't really around for this, but from what I understand from like the late 90s and early 2000s, um, Ilbient was a genre that grew around the chill out room where it wasn't necessarily ambient music, like it was still sort of danceable, but it was down tempo and it was loungy. And uh, I think like coming up for a long time, the kind of music that I liked was like really high intensity, like a lot of bass. Um, and so I thought of lounge as sort of like a bad word. I, this this album is like it's got like elements of jungle and breakbeat, um, and it has um, some pretty dubby like bass lines and a lot of echo and delay, um, and even like a little bit of like Memphis rap like uh, hypnotized mind stuff that you can hear as if like but it's sort of like all underwater. Um, so I picked it because uh, I thought it was interesting just for me becoming reacquainted with like chill music and like learning how to listen to relaxing music again. Um, and it actually reminded me of, um, I don't know if you guys remember 2562's debut album, uh, Ariel, which was sort of like the moment where dubstep and techno really came together with sort of a vocabulary of like very sophisticated techno sound design, but with like uh, dubstep rhythms, which is sort of what it brings to the table. Um, and I thought the drum programming was super interesting. Um, I thought it's like so futuristic that it actually almost sounds like organic. Um, it's almost as if like these sounds are coming from the the natural world. Like I'm reminded of like a a hand slapping against water or like a foot crushing a branch on the ground. Um, so yeah, the the whole album is really great, and it goes between sort of hip hop and jungle and house. Are you familiar with A uh, and F or Perishing Thirst from Montreal? No, I'm not. Uh, so it seems to me like there is this new scene in Montreal um, of this kind of stuff. Uh, so Dusty One, who produces Jungle under that name, also has an alias called Perishing Thirst, which released an album on another Montreal label called NAF last year, and it's very similar. It's a lot of uh, 
Ilbian kind of stuff with some breaks and like really old school, like loungy house and techno vibes. Um, and then he also does a project called ANF with Priori, and they have a record coming out on Pacific Rhythm, and that's more like like that kind of vibe, but dancier. And so it seems like in Montreal, there's this new groundswell of this like really silky Ilbian influenced dance music, and it's a uh, interesting that seems to be becoming a thing now. Yeah, I think that like breaks in general are just super trendy in like like dance club circles yeah. and it's cool that that's being reflected in the ambient scene as well. I also think that like ambient music in general has ha- has become so trendy. I mean, that kind of started like last year or 2 years ago and it's continuing even more. Now, and I think it's related to the whole wellness craze, actually, like (laughs) thinking about my own sort of like cannabis writing, you know, like wellness is like such a health trend right now. People really feel like they need self-care. And I think my my sense is that ambient fits right into that. And uh, ambient music also fits this, you know, model of music that lets you be productive. You can work to it. Uh, Like Cosmin Terry put out that album. And I think it was inspired by WeWork. Uh, it's just like it's all like music for working, and it's like really hyper capitalist ambient music. It's like it's like a parody of it. Well, what I thought was interesting is um, I found that what we just listened to, which is actually one of the most like relaxed down tempo tracks on the album, um, I find that even that is danceable. And so I'm interested in um, the notion of stuff that's sort of slow and uh, not overstimulating. Um, but is still you can find a way for your body to connect with it. Like I like to dance slowly, um, and I love dancing at like ninety beats per minute or hundred beats per minute. And so I'm interested in that sort of weird liminal space between being so abstract that you can't find a way to dance to it and so-called dance music proper. And I think that kind of occupies that space, you know. Um, what did you bring to uh, to show us today, Andrew? Uh, I chose a track from the first album by Non-Local Forecast, who is an American artist with uh, over 30 aliases. Uh, the most well-known is probably Fire Tools, but uh, well, let's listen to the uh, Non-Local Forecast. So uh, Non-Local Forecast is the new alias from a producer named Angel Markloid, who started out in the vaporwave scene making pretty standard, like, sampled, woozy, down-tempo beats. Um, but she has, like I said, around like 30 projects. And um, a few years ago came out with this project called Fire Tools, which blends a lot of vaporwave aesthetics with black metal vocals, which 
it sounds pretty bad on paper, uh, but it's actually really amazing. And I think that she has a really like unique polymath talent for bringing together all these different genres. And she's also an amazing musician. Uh, and so this album, under the name Non-Local Forecast, is more of a jazz fusion album, um, kind of mixed with like vaporwave aesthetics of like hyper-futuristic, really polished, um, kind of schmaltzy, muzaki, but like the chords are crazy, the bass lines are crazy, the drumming is really intense, and she plays everything herself uh, in her home studio. And it's I, I, in my review of the album, I called her like a one woman Steely Dan. Um, my other favorite way of describing this record, which I did not write, uh, is the Weather Channel on cocaine because it sounds like <laughs> the Weather Channel background music, but like really fast. And um, the album really stuck with me. Uh, just because it's it's such a like that was just one track, but the whole there's some ambient bits, there's some bits that get really intense with like guitar solos, um, and she also collaborates with herself under the Fire Tools name on the album, and you can kind of tell which parts on the track are Fire Tools because it's more aggressive, and which parts are non-local forecast, and I think it's really interesting to be like a young not that well-known artist and have such a defined sense of identity that you can collaborate with yourself and have it be clear that it's not just another track on the album. Yeah, I was struck by the by the musicality of it because I think like, you know, a lot these days you don't necessarily need to have much uh, much of a training in melody and uh, chord progressions and key changes. Um, but when you're talking about something that has a, such a, a strong influence from jazz fusion, like, you know, these are legit chord changes and you know you have to write a baseline that's like a counterpoint melody for each of those chord changes so it's cool uh to have something that requires such a technical understanding you know i'm so gagged that vaporwave is still such a thing like when i wrote something about it in 2013 i thought it was just like a fluke i was like here's like a weird internet microtrend that will disappear in like a year or two but it's actually just this thriving online genre right now i'm curious why what you guys think about why it continues to be such a source of like creative inspiration for so many artists and like you know moving into like black metal territory now um, I think uh, from my understanding of it, I've done a lot of writing and interviewing with people in the scene is that it's all like everyone's an outsider who's in their bedroom. So they connect to each other through that, like in weird parts of the world. Like one of the best and most prominent, like modern vaporwave producers is uh, Telepath, who's in Ohio, uh, and like not in like a major city in Ohio. Um, and then because they're not in scenes and they're just talking to each other, there, there's no musical limits or one styles, so everyone's exchanging stuff. Um, and like the last few years, there's hard vapor, which is vaporwave that takes uh, influence from dance music genres. There is like little blips of stuff like jungle wave, which is like vaporwave with breaks. Uh, and so it's just like endless possibilities because the scene isn't rooted in anything or any, anyone or anywhere. It's just this amorphous thing on the internet that, that these young kids who are just taking in all this information are just making whatever they want. And Angel Markloid is a good example. Like, um, she ran her own label for a long time. Uh, it was mostly noise. Then she ran another label that releases like like a fifty things, and she has all these projects. And she just sits at home and makes all this stuff. Like she's not like a touring artist or anything. It's crazy. It's interesting. There's like there's a semi like ironic tongue in cheek element to all this stuff too. Especially if you're like you know uh, coming back to a genre like jazz fusion that was like very maligned for many decades as like corny. And I think for me, actually, that is part of why I have trouble getting 
into vaporwave is because of there's like an arm's distance um, where it's like, am I do I like this or is it half a joke? You know what I mean? Not to say that your relationship to the music is a joke. Yeah, this record is a good example. I mean, the, the music is very it's, cheesy. It's comedic. It's I mean, imitating it's, it's something. It's a bit of a joke. It's imitating something that is quite maligned. Like it sounds like like Weather Channel music, but at the same time, I think the songwriting is so good. And like, there's and the, the first track. There's one point where like this really happy guitar solo breaks out, and it, like it makes me happy. I really enjoy it. I enjoy it unironically. So I think you know, you, you, there's a there's a bridge to cross, and you can cross it. I think it also maybe was a premonition or precluded some of the really creepy algo pop, like very sort of com- like Muzaki commercialized music that is coming to dominate music today like spotify core exactly mm-hmm. but like vaporwave doesn't feel evil because it's outsiders making fun of it you know and like in a way vaporwave to me is surprisingly like again like i didn't expect this but it's kind of like the most recent and probably the last like micro genre that emerged from the internet like i can't really think of Microgenres that have emerged since then that have been significant. And I don't really know why this is happening. I think it might have to do with just the internet no longer feeling as intimate and as underground. Like everything became, all these platforms became huge and like omniscient, you know? Whereas 2012, 2013 was like the last time that you could like be part of this like weird underground music community online. It was something that wasn't sort of like immediately findable. Like I remember back in the days of like C punk, people would intentionally use symbols rather than letters, and part of the strategy was that it would made it hard to Google. So I think that might be sort of what you're talking about in terms of like there was a weird hidden corner that was just me and my weird internet friends. Um, right, C punk, witch house, vaporwave, like that whole thing. The, the, the softcore continuum. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So uh, next, I would love to talk about DJ sets that y'all have heard this year and really enjoyed. Um, Max, why don't you tell us what your pick is? Um, okay, so I have two picks. Sorry, I'll make it quick. The first one is not a DJ set, it was a live act, um, and it was uh, Mark Ernestus and Daga Rhythm Force. Um, so Mark Ernestus, who is one of the two members of Basic Channel, the legendary German dub techno duo, um, he now, I'm going to say sort of collaborates with, although I think it's more complicated than that, but there's a, a group of musicians from Senegal uh, who play a style of percussive music called Mbala. Um, and it's a ensemble of percussionists playing a various uh, different types of uh, traditional skin drums. And uh, it's actually really interesting because it's unclear uh, what exactly he's contributing to it. And like he's like this German white guy, and when he performs with them, he doesn't get on stage with them. He actually stands at the back of the room at the sound mixing booth. And I saw him recently in Brooklyn at Pioneer Works in Red Hook, and I was expecting him to be on stage like playing a synthesizer or a drum machine or something, but he was actually just next to the sound guy managing the levels of all the different instruments. And I mean, they're amazing percussionists with crazy energy and they have two different dancers who are on stage with them but I thought it was really interesting like he I read I recently read an article about his participation in the project and it was talking about how um, 
he doesn't like the idea of like a fusion because a fusion tends to subjugate one style to another style. Like when two styles meet, there's always a dominator. Um, and rather than what he's trying to achieve is something that's like more, you know, meeting on a, a middle ground. Um, and I thought that was amazing. It was a really cool performance. And then um, I wanted to pick up one of my favorite local DJs. Um, his name is Andrew Akambi, and he's from Lagos, uh, Nigeria. Uh, but he's been in Brooklyn for a while. He has a party called Groovy Groovy. Um, and I've seen him twice. I saw him at Groovy Groovy at Hollow in Ridgewood. And then I saw him at Nowadays. Um, and I feel like there aren't any DJs locally doing what he does um, because he like really channels super high energy spirit of rave, just like this sort of like wild energy. I think his, his nickname is actually like Rave Man or something. Um, but he's playing stuff from like, he's shifting tempos um, and he's playing stuff from different regional musical styles. Uh, and he's like really switching it up without falling into the trap of eclecticism. Um, just really tight mixing and really adventurous and taking a lot of risks. And uh, yeah, just people like that who make the scene feel exciting, you know? Um, Andrew, what's your, uh, what's your favorite? Recent uh, DJ set. I think the best I've seen this year was a uh, Josie Rebel, who's a British DJ. Uh, I, I I saw her twice, so I saw her play a warehouse party in LA, and uh, it really blew me away. Uh, it's one of those sets where like you don't want to go to the bathroom because you don't want to miss a song, and I haven't. I only really feel that way with with uh, Ben UFO usually. Um, Josie Rebel really embodies this idea of like a UK continuum of music. And I don't want to say it's like the hardcore continuum because she plays a lot of house and disco, but she's a DJ who can play disco, house, techno, like hardcore and get really weird with it and everything makes sense. She'll jump genres with like a blend, but it makes total sense. She has such control and it really blew me away. Um, and then uh, the next weekend I saw her play Sunday afternoon at Panorama Bar and it was a much different setting than a warehouse party, but I think it made even more sense. Um, just playing like really classic UK garage tracks and some like really obvious disco, but with such skill and finesse and flair. I just there's something about her that's really impressive to me. And um, I guess this would have been the, the second and third time I saw her because I saw her last year in Berlin as well. But these two times really made me realize that she's like essentially my favorite DJ now. Um, maybe even more than Ben UFO. Um, and I also wanted to shout out one more person. Um, I went to Lisbon for the first time this year and I went to this queer sex party called Kit Kat, which is a spinoff of Mina, which is like the dominant queer techno party there. And I saw this DJ named Kerox, who is the only male resident at this party, which is otherwise focused on queer, trans, feminine people. Um, but he'd only started DJing like eight months ago and he was playing this amazing, like sinuous, fluid set of, I guess what you would call like experimental club music, except it was really, uh, really smooth and like it was like kind of reggaeton influence like dembo but it, it wasn't those things and I, I i called it like it almost felt like reconstructed club music as opposed to deconstructed club music and it was like in a smoky basement at like 4 p.m on a saturday afternoon and it was just like so interesting to hear this music that i had no understanding of i didn't know what it was but it, it felt so natural and it was a really nice vibe and i think that the the queer scene in lisbon right now seems to be like really popping off mm -hmm. you were at 4 p.m still going from the night before or it was a daytime party no it was a daytime party it was okay. like it was a, a daytime sex party in a private sex club decked out like Weimar Berlin style and like the, the middle of a residential block in Lisbon and it went from like 1 p.m. to 10 p.m. 
a daytime sex party. And it, it, it was their first birthday. And so, of course, they called it Bitch Day. Got it. I love it. Uh, Michelle, what about you? So I um, recently threw this weed rave in LA in January and all of the DJs were incredible. I sort of tried to ask DJs to focus on more of the dub jungle end of the spectrum to fit the weed theme. Um, but one of the set that really stood out to me was by this Oakland DJ named Russell E.L. Butler. Um, and beforehand, you know, we'd been discussing what kind of tracks they wanted to play. And they were really kind of getting super creative with it and, and, and like talking about wanting to play songs about weed as well um, and taking a very sort of like playful angle to it um, and really thinking about, I think, what it means to be to play weed music, which is like this weird question that people ask me all the time, like what's weed music? Because like, please, let's not assume that it's only like reggae or something, you know? But um, when when they actually played the DJ set, they played a lot of like jungle reggae, but also played like, you know, this one like a uh, DJ Sluggo set called A Blunt, which was great. Um, a Blunt. Mm-hmm. I like it. I love it. I wish I had it on my computer so we could... Um, so that kind of made me think about how weed music is also just funny. You know what I mean? Like I love DJ sets that have humor incorporated into it. Um, and afterwards I asked Russell, I was like, what did you think of weed dance floor energy? Like how did it feel different from a typical dance floor? And they said, um, stoners have a different dance style that they get fatigued easier but they're also more cerebral and like more intimate in the way that they listen to the music I think they said it's a dance to conserve it's a sway it's real deep and personal um and at one point in the middle of their set um they actually played this excerpt of a vocal from a Mad Mike interview I mean I think it was a RBMA lecture um so they totally just cut all of the music and played this like monologue which they drenched in like all of this reverb to make it sound really sort of like weird and trippy and I mean it was one of the coolest moments for everyone to just stop and like listen and everyone was super fucking stoned so you know they were super into it and not bored um I think if it was like a speedy kind of dance floor people might have been like "Eh, what's going on I'm gonna I'm gonna leave you know but with the weed dance floor, people are down. People are down to kind of stew and like think about things, which is cool. Did you want me to play this Mad Mike? I would love to. Okay, let's hear the Mad Mike monologue. All y'all moving to Berlin. Berlin. It's too late. late. Stay independent. independent. Do your own shit. shit. Start your own distributions. distributions. You need to do something else. 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 What you looking for here, it might not be here. So, you know, I've so, been listening you know, I've been to listening y'all dreams, to dreams and, and stuff, and, and, stuff and, and stuff, you know, you know, you know, and I do care I about you. I feel rich. I fucking love Mad Mike. <laughs> Such a G. I also just love DJs ripping audio from like a YouTube video or like a lecture and dropping it into their sets, you know, and going beyond like playing 
two club tracks mixed into each other. It's so simple, like to add like a some like uh, to add an unusual touch to your DJ set, and yet so few people do something as simple as ripping an MP3 off of YouTube and then using it as an interlude between two tracks to give it some kind of like theatrical message. You know what I mean, like. Um, I was going to say, uh, speaking of moving to Berlin, there are always like these like cyclical trends in dance music. Like you pointed out that uh, Michelle, you pointed out that breakbeats are big right now. They're they're in. I was wondering, like, what else have you noticed is like a, a thing in dance music or like a trend in dance music in, right now in in your eyes or in your experience? Well, I think that queer culture, which has already been a really strong presence in dance music for several years, but now it's like the dominant vibe. And I've been kind of working on this theory for a while of how queerness is a sound. And I and I do think that DJs who are queer play differently than straight people. Like if you just think of like a really typical techno song that's like 4-4, four, four, very linear. Like to me, that's a very hetero sound, you know? And the queer sound to me is very much like a mishmash of different paradoxes and contradictions. It's a refusal to be within like the boundaries of binaries. It's a very sort of like ambiguous in-between state, a very transitory state. Obviously, I don't think only queer DJs play this way. Like some straight DJs play in a queer style. I don't know. This is a theory that I obviously haven't written about or anything yet. It's still developing. But what do you guys think? Like, do you think that, do do you see what I'm trying to say? (laughs) Yeah, um, I was going to kind of talk about the similar thing. And one thing that I've noticed, like not only is there a resurgence or of queer artists, parties, promoters, queer people involved in this community, but I think a lot of the most boundary pushing DJs are, are, are trans people. Yeah, all my favorite DJs are trans. <laughs> and like, why is that so? And I think it has to do with this like refusal to give a fuck to what the usual rules are. And so I think that the more inclusive these communities and parties come, the stranger and more interesting the music gets. Like, uh, I saw that New World Disorder, which is Jasmine Infinity's crew, play at Honcho Campout, um, and like their set was crazy. It was like two p.m. in the afternoon, sunny day, really hot out, and they started out playing some like regular house and techno, and then they got into like like really strong like hardcore techno and gabber, and everyone's like losing their minds, and it just felt it felt really transgressive and like, transgressive in a musical sense, but it just you know like at this. Festival, which is dominated by men, uh, and they're just playing this crazy music at like a crazy time of day to play it. Like they're not giving a fuck about what you're supposed to play. Like a sunny afternoon, they're just like playing like super fast, hard, like gabbery techno. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, like you said, it's like there's, they don't care about um, a lot of these crew DJs don't care about binaries or systems or what they're supposed to do. And it feels like this like liberating energy is spreading through the scene. And I think. Not to get too much into this, but I also think there's a difference between the queer sound and the gay sound. Yes, because you know the gays love that straight techno, <laughs> but they also have this sort of fabulousness to it, right? And this sort of like femme quality um, to the gay sound as well. But it's not as much of a intense clash between genres and ambiguity between. Yeah, sounds. Yeah, I mean, I, I've written a lot in the past few years about the resurgence of of gay 
techno culture. Um, you know, if you think about, particularly in the U.S., it's different in Europe, but in the U.S. and Canada, even five years ago, almost every gay club or venue was just going to be playing either like top forty pop remixes or like really boring circuit music, uh, circuit parties, or like a gay parties that started in the nineties as, as HIV charities, but have just gr- grown into like this uh, moneyed like uh, body fascist kind of thing with the most boring music that's like tribal house made only for these parties. Anyways, that was like the the sound of being gay. And I remember when I first started going out in Vancouver where I'm from, it's like I had to choose between going to a party with good music and hanging out with straight people and hanging out with gay people at places with horrible music. Um, And with the help of crews like Honey Sound System in San Francisco and, and Honcho in Pittsburgh, I feel like the the gay community has really opened back up to underground dance music. And there's been like this, uh, it's like the, the, the two things have met again because, you know, everyone says that dance music started in oppressed queer communities, but for a long time, uh, it wasn't, didn't feel that way. When I started working in dance music, I didn't know any gay people at all. I felt like I was like an alien. Um, and now I feel like in the U S these gay parties, which are becoming more queer and more inclusive and they still have work to do. They're still very white male dominated, but I feel like these parties have become so cool in themselves that they're the gay people are starting to drive the scene again in a way that hasn't been seen in a long time. I also think it was interesting to provide a counterpoint. Like when you were tweeting about a new club opening up in New York city, you tweeted, there's a new queer club in town. Maybe this could be our Bergheim. And we were just talking about it because you said it was tongue in cheek and some people took it too seriously. Um, and someone tweeted back at you. They were like, queer club, what does queer club mean? Like, does that mean it's owned by someone who's queer? Like, does that mean it has queer promoters? And so I thought it was interesting, the idea of queer club and when does something become a queer club when it's not even open yet and its crowd hasn't defined its vibe yet. You know what I mean? And I was thinking about um, like queer now as something that you can put on a flyer to drive ticket sales um, when it's not necessarily something that's even based in the dynamic of the place yet. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. But I think that's a good sign in a way, right? That like it's cool enough to be used as a marketing gimmick. <laughs> Definitely. It's a symbol of its arrival. Um, Max, what are your thoughts? Um, I was thinking about how I feel like recently there's been an arms race of who can make the uh, fastest and hardest and most intense techno. Um, And I feel like there's maybe starting to be like an oversaturation of super hard and intense techno. And I think maybe at some point this year, the public is going to be ready for sort of like an opening up or a broadening or a more dynamic definition of what techno can be. Like techno can be melodic, techno can be percussive. Techno doesn't have to be built around a kick drum. Like even if you just think about the mixing of a techno track, like recently I've been hearing so much techno where the kick drum in terms of volume is just mixed way up. Um, And I think uh, there's been a proliferation of people who only see techno as a like weapon of brute force and whereas it can be something that's like nimble and subtle and has a lot of intricacy and subtlety um, and I think I, I, I think it's we can expect maybe this year to see it opening up a little bit the definition of what techno can mean what do you think yeah I mean some of the most banging techno tracks don't have a kick drum. Like, there's so much you can do within the template. One of the most exciting things about techno to me is the fact that, in some ways, the genre 
is so rigid and defined that you really have to tweak and do inventive things within the small template. And that's how you have this like these small strokes of genius. You're like, whoa, this track is insane, even though to the layman it's just another techno track. But you can do so much within the template. And most dance music is like that. It's the same reason I like metal. It's a very similar thing. It's like there's all these subgenres that are all based in the same idea, but you can do little things with them that maybe no one else has thought of. And so I think techno could always use more space, more ingenuity, more more brokenness, more queerness, you know? Like it doesn't have to be just doof, 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 doof. And I think that there are a, a lot of people who are maybe getting lost in the quest to just like pulverize the, the, the dance floor. Um, one more trend I wanted to shout out was this whole post-EDM milieu, which I find fascinating. You know, we were talking about this the other night in the club, Max, um, about how when we worked at Vice together, we covered a lot of EDM and witnessed this crazy thing happen in America. And now EDM's kind of over, you know, like the last time I went to Miami Music Week for Ultra, it was like, there's no one there. So I feel like a lot of the artists that were making the most interesting music during EDM's heyday are now moving in new directions. And I'm super interested in how they are porting the sort of like accessibility and mainstream appeal of EDM to like audiences that are also ready for different styles and sounds. So two artists that I've been following are Miha and Porter Robinson. And I think Miha started making acoustic, very personal, very like poetic storytelling kind of music um, that's completely like completely opposite from the trappy like, you know, stuff that she was doing with Ausla. Um and Porter Robinson, who I caught at a show in LA recently, holy shit, he's playing like Bergheim tracks to like, you know, kids who usually go to like Hardfest and they're eating it all up. Um, it was one of the best, in, most insane shows that I've ever been, both in terms of the music and production, but also just like the trippiness of hearing like hardcore techno and hard style being played to like, 18-year-old like candy kids who were eating it up. So I almost feel like a lot of the candy kids who would have gone to like Nocturnal Wonderland or whatever, all these EDM festivals are also starting to get into underground rave. I know for a fact that there's like a whole bunch of like kids in the valley who are throwing like happy hardcore raves and like tunnels. You said that when you went to Ultra Festival, it was basically, it felt empty? It felt like a lot of the brands that were typically there, the brands and music labels were not. There were still fans. I think that EDM will always have like f people who are interested in it, but it didn't feel as zeitgeisty as in previous years. It's interesting that the EDM bubble seems to be bursting, but in terms of like clubbing and nightlife like in New York there's so much happening and it's not it's not even EDM for the most part it's like what we would consider quote unquote underground music and in the last year or so there's been kind of like an ex two years there's been an explosion of new clubs but also some older clubs closing so I was wondering what you guys thought of where the scene in New York is going and where it's at uh, Max why don't, why don't you start 
Well, I recently spoke to someone who had a very interesting theory that I'm not sure I fully buy, but I thought it was provocative. Um, and this person told me that some of the medium-sized clubs, like, well, Output closed last year. Um, and uh, someone recently told me that they attributed it to the existence of places like Avant Gardner or Brooklyn Mirage, um, which is like, a, I think 5,000 capacity. Um, and they have pyrotechnics and they have this like super high budget light show and it's a spectacle and people go there to be wowed by the size and scale and the colors of the experience. You know, like I actually, I had a great time. I went to um, Lady Fag's party, Holy Mountain. It was like, I haven't been to a party with five rooms in yeah, years. Holy Mountain is crazy. It was awesome. But, um, you know, like I remember being at Elsewhere, which is a club that's a few blocks away from uh, Avant Gardner, and you can see plumes of fire coming up from the venue. And it's like literally like you're at like an REO Speedwagon concert <laughs> in a stadium. And so this person was telling me that he, I'm sorry, she thinks that... Um, that this is endangering like mid-sized and small clubs because the new mode of going out is you go out a few times a year and it's this super crazy spectacle that's like a $300 night because I mean the tickets for these things are not cheap and then all the alcohol and whatever drugs you're doing it ends up being like a pretty expensive night um and so she was saying that that that's hurting uh medium-sized clubs because people aren't developing these relationships to a nightclub where you go every weekend because it's your favorite spot. You don't even necessarily care who's DJing. You just like the club. You know what I mean? Um, and she was saying that the the mode of partying and of seeing music uh, is shifting away from, you know, going to your favorite spot every weekend. And instead you're going to Disneyland, you know, three times a year. Um, I don't know if I'd buy it totally because I think there are a lot of mid-level, like medium-sized, medium-capacity clubs like nowadays. Um and smaller ones like Jupiter Disco or Bossa Nova Civic Club or Mood Ring that are doing well. Like I remember when I interviewed Frankie here for the RA Exchange, she was telling me like she was working at Bossa where she was there one night. She texted her friend who was doing a party at Nowadays and she was like, it's full here. How's it doing over there? And they were like, it's full here too. And it's like, it's full everywhere. There's enough to go around. You know what I mean? I don't know. Does that, does that, is there something like that in Los Angeles? Like, or, or do they not have that no, kind of like... No, it's kind of um, an opposite effect where in LA, a lot of parties that I've been going to have been half empty. And I think it's because we experienced a period of rapid growth in the last year or two and it almost became too fast. And now the scene has to catch up. Um, I do agree that New York nightlife seems to be on a completely different level compared to a year or two ago. And it is interesting that a lot of these so-called legacy clubs have closed, not just Output, but like Pasha. Um, Cielo. Cielo. But my theory is more as to do with like the, the, like real estate and like how certain neighborhoods are just untenable to have clubs in. And Output is like almost this super ironic example because they were one of the first to gentrify Williamsburg when they moved into that you know, street that they were on, like there was nothing else there. And now, and then like a few years later, they basically turned it into the meatpacking of Brooklyn with all of these like really terrible stockbroker bros like coming for their like one crazy night out in Brooklyn. And now it's like all those bros live there all the time because they live near the Williamsburg waterfront and like literally output could not afford to be there anymore. And Avant Gardner nowadays, all these clubs are further into Brooklyn, right? They're all in like, Bushwick and Ridgewood, 
Avant Gardner actually invested really smartly, I think, in buying up the whole block that they're in. So that's how they're able to sort of like, you know, navigate the rising prices of real estate is just like to literally own it. I do think that there is a bit of a tension between clubs or venues like Avant Gardner. I don't know what we can call them. They're not mainstream, but they're like... <laughs> middle room house or um, like <laughs> like middle in the middle um and, and like the truly DIY underground spots right like a lot of those places have disappeared we don't really have that many DIY venues like there was like a loft called Taffy that's completely gone now and that was like the last house in techno Taffy's still yeah. around no what yeah girl I went there done. two weeks ago I, I know that was their last party wow yeah um, the place was uh, a fire trap waiting to happen. But, yeah, but it I mean, was a beautiful fire this is trap. like the it's like the post ghost ship landscape that we live in now. I saw today that this other bar that's run by a group of you know DIY kids called Secret Project Robot is shutting down. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah, so I do think that we're losing some really important underground spaces because of the legitimacy that New York nightlife has won in the last one or two years, you know, overturning the cabaret law, getting a nightmare, all of these sort of like officially sanctioned positions that allow the nightlife ecosystem to operate as a capital I industry um, has allowed for like a lot more accessibility for people. And that's why, you know, all these places are slammed because a lot more kids are able to you know, it's easier to find a club than a rave. Like you can, you know where nowadays is all the time. You don't need to have the address from a homie, you know? So it's a lot more accessible. But on the other hand, um, all the DOI spots are disappearing. And I think we need to think about what the effect on culture that would be, that will be because DIY spaces are real incubators for what's next. While clubs are by default, I think, they have to be more profit driven. Yeah, it's interesting because as someone who doesn't doesn't live in New York and has never lived in New York, it's like at this point it seems almost like a clubbing wonderland, like on par with with it somewhere in Europe because there are so many legitimate venues. And in Los Angeles, where I, where I live, uh, almost everything is underground. Um, there's a few clubs, but most of them are, are either booking like mainstream stuff or they're just kind of like they're expensive. It's a nightclub, um, and. There really is like everything is DIY, which is cool, but th there's no one place where you can really go every weekend and dance um, and know it's going to be a good time. And a lot of people complain about that. Um, and it's interesting how you have a city where there's all these legitimately amazing nightclubs with like great amenities, good drinks, good sound, and and but people want the DIY spaces. And then in LA, it's like some old ravers like fever dream where everything is a rave, everything's in a warehouse, um, but there's no like comfortable bar to go to. And it, it's interesting to me how each coast is like a, on a different extreme end of it. Um, I also think you know in LA. These people who are going to warehouse parties, they would love a, a reliable club. And in California, they're really pushing to uh, bring the last call to 4 a.m. so clubs can serve alcohol later. But do people want to pay club drink prices and pay for club entrance? I'm not sure. So I, I feel like in a lot of ways, it's kind of a, like a grass is greener thing. I do think, I mean, I was actually just going to talk about what Michelle was saying about how DIY spaces are incubators and specifically about the idea of having like an overhead 
Um, and I think what happens is like a club moves into a neighborhood, they have an idea of what they want to be and they have an idea of what kind of programming they want to do. And they have these sort of like, you know, uh, hard values about what kind of music they're going to play. And then they face the harsh reality of having to fill the nightclub as many nights as possible. And they start making, you know, compromises to the kind of music they book. And then, you know, it's like you're in Williamsburg. It's just some of the most expensive real estate in the city. Uh, you're paying a crazy real estate tax. Like you got to keep the lights on, and you can't hold dear to those, to the values and to the taste that you thought was going to define your business. You know what I mean? And whereas a DIY space doesn't have to necessarily worry about overhead and isn't trying to be a sustainable long-term business. You know what I mean? It's like we're just here. We're going to do our thing, and then maybe we'll be done soon. You know? And so you kind of have to compromise values when you have to worry about paying for the the roof over your head. You know? Right. And even if you compare like, you know, a city like New York and Berlin, Berlin being like the big example of a city where nightlife has become an industry and a Disneyland experience for many people, like a like a tourism attraction. Um, but I feel like Berlin still is, you know, relatively hospitable to artists because the cost of living is still pretty low. Um, whereas in New York, you know, it's hard, it's, it's so hard to live here as an artist. So if all of the clubs are like Disneyland and you can't afford to like live here and make music, I'm just curious about where New York nightlife is going. Like, what is it going to look like in five to 10 years? Obviously it's on this insane upward growth explosion, but does it come with the loss of artistic cred? Can artists still afford to like create and make interesting music here? Like it would be so ironic if we get the booming nightlife industry that we've all kind of wanted and then it comes at the cost of like literally killing the underground. It's capitalism. I mean, the, <laughs> one of the major differences between New York and Berlin is that the government in Germany and, and, and Berlin, the city, supports nightlife and like more so than lip service like an American government would do, like nightlife is embedded into their economy, and they, they provide grants that. and subsidies. Yeah, yeah exactly. They As if they were the small clubs. businesses that could deserve to be nurtured, which lets them book whatever they want and not have to worry about selling x many drinks every night. Is the pressure is not as much. So if if like the New York City Council or whatever was a little more like that, maybe it would ease some of the pressure. Like I think that's part of why Berlin hasn't is not garbage. Mm. Yeah, I mean, New York is showing some signs of recognizing and supporting nightlife as an industry. You know, this new office of nightlife that they started last year um, recently did a survey that released some hard metrics of like how much money the industry is making and like how much it's growing. And it's super interesting because apparently nightlife is outpacing all other sectors of industry, all other sectors in New York, like almost by double in its growth. Um, yeah, I think it'll be interesting. Well, I think you guys both know that the lot radio, the attached cafe recently had its license pulled because of complicated bureaucratic issues. And I know that the people from the lot radio are working with 
the nightlife office to be like, this is your job. You guys smooth out the bureaucratic relationship between a small creative business and the city. And I, that has yet to be ironed out, but I think that's sort of the litmus test of like, all right, how effective is this organization actually going to be? You know what I mean? Are you going to help these people get their lights back on? Mm-hmm. You know, and like, because otherwise I haven't seen any hard evidence that they're really doing anything. I mean, it's still new, but... And it's such a contrast to the 90s, you know, which I would say was the last golden age of nightlife in New York where you associate Giuliani like literally like trying to (laughs) get (laughs) the government to investigate people and shut people down. It was like such an antagonistic relationship. So this does represent something really new and interesting to me, like New York City supporting nightlife. (laughs) 